the History Channel original podcast. History This Week, November 21st, 1783. I'm Sally Helm. It's just past noon, and the sky is looking dark, threatening even, which isn't great news for two Frenchmen standing nervously in the garden at the Chateau de la Mouette. Because today, they're supposed to become the first two human beings ever to take free, untethered flight. At the sound of a cannon, a 75-foot-tall balloon begins to fill with hot air. Eight minutes later, it's full and tugging at the rope that holds it to the ground. The balloon's inventors insist on one more test, letting the balloon rise while it's still tethered to the ground. As it's floating up, a gust of wind pushes the craft to one side, tangling the ropes and damaging the balloon. Some volunteer seamstresses rush forward to make repairs. The crowd is restless. People begin to jeer. But finally, after an hour and a half, the two Frenchmen step into their wicker baskets and the balloon takes off. According to one account, people were so overcome by a mixed sentiment of fear and admiration that the crowd fell silent and a few women fell ill. One of the aeronauts looking down at the people below is surprised to see them standing so still. He gives a little wave of his kerchief and they erupt into cheers. This first human balloon flight is more than just a landmark in aviation history. For the crowds of huddled French masses looking up from below, it is a revolution in and of itself. Today, defying gravity and monarchy, how did two sons of a papermaker create the first successful aviation device in history? And how did the balloon come to symbolize the French Revolution? Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Paris, France, 1783. The Age of the Enlightenment. Scientists are just starting to discover what chemicals make up the air we breathe. Five years ago, a French scientist came up with the name oxygen. This year, he'll give a name to another component of air, hydrogen. 
you could almost see light bulbs going off over heads all over Europe because this is a gas that is about six times lighter than atmospheric air. Tom Crouch grew up in Dayton, Ohio, the home of the Wright brothers. He studied the history of flight. BA, MA, PhD, all history degrees. Before becoming senior curator of aeronautics at the Smithsonian's National Air and Space Museum. He told us, by the time the Enlightenment came around, scientists and inventors had been obsessing over flight for centuries. Think the Greek myth of Icarus flying too close to the sun with wings made of wax. Or Leonardo da Vinci back in the 1500s, sketching designs for flying machines. Now, in the 1780s, suddenly hydrogen comes along. This gas that's lighter than air. So everybody was saying, wow, if if you could fill some kind of a lightweight vessel with this stuff, maybe it would fly. Experiments start popping up all over Europe. People would take animal intestines, scraped so that it's very thin, and try filling it with hydrogen and almost making it float, but not quite. One of the people fiddling with the idea of flight is Joseph-Michel Montgolfier, 13th out of 15 kids in the Montgolfier family. Joseph was something of the black sheep of the the family. He uh, had a difficult time in school, didn't go into the family business initially. The family business is papermaking. The Montgolfiers had been doing it for generations. And the person who's going to take over this very successful business is Joseph's youngest brother, Jacques Etienne. Unlike his older brother, he's a diligent student and a very good businessman. Etienne was actually involved in sort of a minor technological revolution in terms of papermaking. While Etienne is using new Dutch machines to make ever finer paper pulp, Joseph is in the south of France trying to make things fly. He creates a simple little vessel. Balloon is just ball, ballon in French. Balloon, a ball. He wants to fill it up with some kind of special lightweight gas, similar to hydrogen, but he's trying to find something new. So he starts burning stuff. He would burn damp organic material, everything from wet straw to rabbit skins and old shoes, frankly. And lo and behold, Joseph finds that when the gas from this burning witch's cauldron fills up a balloon, it floats. He thinks he's found a special new kind of gas, what he'll call Montgolfier gas. Of course, what he's really doing is filling a little balloon with hot air. Which helps the balloon fly because hot air rises and it brings the little balloon along with it. But even though Joseph doesn't completely understand the science behind it, his balloon works. He writes home to his goody-goody brother, Etienne, who's running the papermaking business. And he says, Give me a bag and some rope and I'll show you a miracle. That's about what he said. Etienne is impressed. He says, I'll help you out with this whole flight thing. And the brothers get to work. They try out different balloon shapes. They decide to back the fabric they've been using with paper. I mean, they are paper manufacturers. And finally, 
in June of 1783, they're ready to go public. And uh, so the brothers went down to the town square. In their hometown of Ananay, they get the local legislative assembly to convene. It's June 4th, 1783. That became the big event of the local assembly. The Montgolfiers demonstrating this new invention of theirs. This balloon is their largest yet. It's 35 feet wide, about the length of a school bus. It weighs 500 pounds. And to make sure it's sturdy enough to withstand the elements... They actually glued it, reinforced it. And when all of that was done, they put buttons on it just to make absolutely sure that the thing was as airtight or as gas-tight as they could make it. 1,800 buttons later... It flew, and uh, that was enough to take people's breath away. The balloon travels about a brief mile and a half before landing on a fence. Then it goes up in flames. But soon, news of this flight is traveling too. Then, as today, all roads in France lead to Paris. And the news did reach Paris within a month or so. There are Parisian newspaper articles. Talking about some strange thing these two guys had done down in Annonay, and somehow they'd made this thing fly. The Parisian elite are intrigued. They correctly assume that the Montgolfiers will soon be bringing their flying machine to Paris. But some of them are a little impatient. One guy in particular began literally passing the hat and taking up a collection uh, among interested people in intellectual circles in Paris. And he gave the money he collected to a brilliant young chemist, a fellow named Jacques-Alexander César Charles. Jacques Charles had been a sort of government clerk, but he was fascinated by all the new scientific discoveries swirling around him, just like Joseph Montgolfier and countless others. So Charles had thrown away his career in politics to become a scientific lecturer. Sort of like an 18th century Bill Nye, the science guy kind of thing. These wealthy Parisian intellectuals pool their money and bring it to Charles. They say, Whatever those two guys, Anne and did, you do it for us. Show us what they did. Charles doesn't know how the Montgolfiers made their balloon fly. But he thinks... Oh, they must have filled it with hydrogen. And he's actually a better scientist than either of the Montgolfier brothers. He doesn't use dead-hot animal air like Joseph Montgolfier. Instead, he figures out how to create hydrogen gas in a controlled reaction and use it for flight. His balloon is made of rubber-coated silk. The lightest weight fabric that he can find. And by late August of 1783 he's ready to debut his gas balloon. By this point, it seems like everyone in Paris has heard about the Montgolfier flight. And in the days leading up to Charles's launch, so many people flock to his garden that they have to move to a larger venue. And the Paris police get involved. At 2 a.m., under the cover of night, the balloon is transferred to the Champ de Mars, a military parade ground where the Eiffel Tower stands today. And the balloon is accompanied the whole time by a police escort. Paris, of course, had the most advanced and sophisticated police system. That's Meek Young Kim, a historian of science who wrote a book about the public response to ballooning. 
She told us, in 1783 Paris, this sort of government oversight of a public gathering was nothing new. Like at theater performances, there were strict rules. The audience was not supposed to yell out or even call for another performance. They were supposed to be there silent. And if they liked something, they could clap. If they didn't like something, they could be silent. (laughs) But they were not supposed to be uh, unruly at all. The royal administration actually planted policemen and spies in the audience to enforce the rules. So they have experience with crowd control. A balloon launch should be no big deal. But... The Parisian theaters, the largest one, I think held somewhere between 600 to 800 people. Charles's first flight attracts an estimated 50,000. This is not something that the royal government is prepared for. They never had an experience of such a crowd. They never imagined that that kind of crowd would gather. The balloon crowd is different from the theater-going crowd in other ways, too. At this time in Paris, people who went to the theater were members of what was called the public. When we say public, we include everybody, right? But in the 18th century, public meant uh, mostly the people who were somewhat educated, who would pay the money to go to the theater, who would be properly attired to be able to take a stroll in public gardens. So the public is generally literate. The rest of the population, those who aren't high society types, they're known as the people. The people were illiterate. They'll be servants. They will be um, water carriers and what have you, doing the menial labor. So there is a big difference between the public and the people. And that's why the balloon event is so significant. This was the first time when there is an audience that kind of mixes all of these layers of the public and the people. There's a space reserved for the some 4,000 ticket holders. These are mostly upper-class types, the public. But you can watch the balloon fly from anywhere for free. So tens of thousands of Parisians crowd together in the streets. That crowd, Tom Crouch told us, includes some Americans. We tend to forget that in Paris, in the summer and fall of 1783, there were a lot of famous Americans. The Adams family were there. Not like Cousin It, we're talking John Adams, the future president. Also John Jay, Benjamin Franklin. They were all negotiating the Treaty of Paris with the British. That's the treaty that will end the American Revolution. And so those American revolutionaries who are hanging around Paris as the negotiations wrap up. They all turned out to uh, watch Jacques Charles flight. Benjamin Franklin writes about this moment, watching the hydrogen balloon drift higher and higher into the sky. Franklin gives a marvelous description of how it rises to the air and it appears like an orange in the sky and then gets smaller and smaller. As the story goes, at this flight, or maybe a later one, Franklin overhears someone in the crowd say basically, okay, so he made this thing fly, so what? And Franklin is reputed to have leaned out his carriage window and said, sir, of what use is a newborn babe? What Franklin is trying to say is that 
You have no idea what this child is going to grow up to become, what great things he may perform. Similarly, what will humanity do now that we can fly? There was a sense now that finally real change was in the air and the balloon seemed to symbolize it. The gas balloon ends its epic flight in a little village called Ganes. It lands on the ground. It's burbling a little bit. It's still full of gas. And when the villagers see it... These guys think it's a demon of some sort. So they attack it with pitchforks and flails, and they actually tie it to the tail of a horse and drag it in triumph through the streets of uh, the single street of uh, Ganesh. In response, royal court officials make an announcement to priests all over the country. They say, please tell your congregations. If uh, you see one of these things fall out of the sky on your land and it looks a little strange, don't worry. It's not supernatural. The devil's not involved in this. It's just our natural philosophers fooling around. And this is something wonderful, not something to be afraid of. So really, from the very beginning, the, the court sees a necessity to step in and serve as an intermediary, helping the people of France understand what's going on here. As time goes on and these flights continue, the royal court will try increasingly to become involved in the matter of ballooning. Not just because they were interested in it, but it might have made them nervous too, as well it should have. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Paris, France, 1783. The monarchs, King Louis XVI and Queen Marie Antoinette, are inviting elite guests to lavish dinner parties at the Palace of Versailles. That year, the queen commissions an architect to begin building her a hamlet, a model village on the palace grounds where she can go to get away from it all. Meanwhile... You have to remember, this was a difficult time in France. The court had supported the Americans in their revolution. 
which had strained the finances of the kingdom. Now... When there were food shortages and uh, bad harvests and that kind of thing, there wasn't a lot the court could do about it. Because they're having money troubles. Tom Crouch told us ordinary French citizens are feeling the squeeze. And King Louis knows he might be in trouble. By the end of this year, he'll have cycled through three different finance ministers in a desperate attempt to get the country out of debt. But still, he also has other things on his mind. Personally, Louis XVI, the king of France, regards himself as a modern man, interested in science and technology and what was going on in the world. And that means he is fascinated by the balloon. Not just as a science-minded guy, but also as the king. He wants to promote the glory of French inventions. So, Louis asks the Montgolfier brothers to launch another hot air balloon a few weeks after Charles's flight. This time sponsored by the royal family. At the palace at the Versailles. The Montgolfiers prepare a lavish balloon for the occasion painted bright blue and gold and embellished with the monarchy's symbol of the fleur-de-lis. This flight will have passengers. The duck, a rooster, and a sheep. They're going to become the first living creatures to take to the air. At least the first that don't have their own wings. This is an experiment. Because no one knows how the human body might respond to flight. Whether people could survive it. They'd hiked mountains, so they knew there was air up there. But there was some fear that perhaps the atmosphere just followed the contour of the Earth. So there would be air right above a mountain, but if you were high above a field, maybe you wouldn't be able to breathe. So today, a duck, a rooster, and a sheep will be the guinea pigs. On September 19th, crowds pour out of Paris to Versailles to watch this balloon take off. At 1 p.m., at the sound of the cannon, the Montgolfiers start burning those animal skins and old shoes to make their special flight gas. And they invite the queen, Marie Antoinette, down to the furnace to witness history in the making. And uh, the story is she was actually driven away by the stench. King Louis invites Etienne Montgolfier, the goody two-shoes brother, into the royal viewing area. He lends him his spyglass to see where the balloon landed. Someone rushes to the field to check on the creatures inside. And? It turns out that the animals are just fine. It's really an extraordinary moment. Because it brings them one step closer to the ultimate goal of this whole ballooning craze. Sending human beings into the sky. On November 21st, 1783, it finally happens. Those nervous Frenchmen fly up into the gray afternoon air. The crowd erupts in cheers of relief. The flying Frenchmen travel five miles and then land safely on a patch of field near two windmills. Again, there are American revolutionaries in this excited crowd. They're writing home about the balloon launches, the infectious energy all around them in France. And it's clear that they're excited because, okay, they have just negotiated their freedom. 
they are casting off the chains of tyranny from their point of view that Great Britain has encased them in, and they're free, just as these people have cast off the chains of gravity and are flying freely away into the air. So the balloon, especially the flights of human beings, just had uh, a very great social, psychological impact. These balloons kick off a cultural obsession around the world. Balloonomania. People are slapping balloon images on anything you can think of. From wallpaper to ceramics to, gosh, uh, you name it. Balloon snuff boxes. Porcelain bidet toilets painted with the image of a balloon. Puff sleeves and strange hairdos. There are, are dances, minuets, composed in celebration of the balloons that are danced at court and in public events. There are miniature balloon figurines and cups and saucers commemorating the first flight. People recognize that some fundamental thing has changed here. Human beings have actually learned to fly, and they did it by pursuing what's going to be called science and what's going to be called technology. And by golly, those forces are going to shape the future. And that's worth celebrating. I want to remember the moment I saw first balloon fly. So I'll buy a little cup and saucer with that balloon that I saw flying. This flurry of commercial activity, branding really, it isn't unusual today, but... You can't find many instances of that sort of what we might call commercial enthusiasm before the invention of the balloon. This scientific object is becoming a national obsession outside of the monarchy's control. For King Louis, that makes it a threat. I mean, there's a quick transition from crowds celebrating balloons to crowds demanding bread, you know? Remember, these balloon ascents aren't just attracting highly educated members of the public who would already be invited to salons where the latest science was on display. The people were watching too, thousands of them. And Professor Kim told us, The balloon assumed an authority that superseded the king's. There's nothing that was comparable in public authority to science. This may sound hyperbolic, but really, these events were dangerous to the monarchy for two reasons. One is the sheer number of people gathering across class lines in such an unprecedented way. The other is the intense emotion surrounding the balloons, the way people see them as a symbol of science and progress and hope. Until this point, King Louis had been excited about the balloons himself. But he can see that these flights might be taking on a life of their own. At the end of November, just a week before Charles is set to fly his balloon again, there's an accident with a gas balloon and a lamp. Charles hears a rumor that Louis has declared no more balloon demos. They're dangerous. But Charles decides to fly his balloon anyway. And the crowd that turns out to watch that flight? The contemporary estimate 
ranges from 100,000 to 300,000. That's half the population of the city of Paris. So if you include with the elderly, the kids, and so on, it means that almost anybody who could walk was trying to watch the balloon ascent. Tom Crouch told us, supposedly, one of the spectators, an old woman, wanders out of the crowd, saying, Oh, next thing you know, they're going to decide how we can live forever. And for me, it's too late. That was the way people reacted. My gosh, if we can send human beings into the air, what can't we do? The balloon harnessed the ideas of science and put them to practical use. And within a few years, French revolutionaries will be looking to science and reason and enlightenment thought to form a new system of government. One that's different from the monarchy, which they now reject. They want a society where people have more say and more people have money. In the meantime, what gains new attention is the guillotine, this uh, symbol of the revolutionary government and also seen as a scientific machine. In August of 1792, French revolutionaries storm the Tuileries Palace, the site of Jacques Charles' last gas balloon flight. They abolish the monarchy, declare France a republic, and form a tribunal to condemn political offenders. Many will be sent to the guillotine, including King Louis and Marie Antoinette. But, Tom Crouch told us, when the authorities arrived to drag Jacques Charles away to trial for being a French intellectual connected to the king, as they're dragging him out the door, the story is, Charles points up to a little balloon that he has hanging from the ceiling and says, don't you remember me? I'm the guy who gave you the balloon. And suddenly they, they're all on his side all of a sudden. They let him go. They don't arrest him or beat him up or destroy his property. That's the power of the balloon. All revolutions want to represent the future, right? And the balloon was the future. Thanks for listening to History This Week. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. If you want to get in touch, please shoot us an email at our email address, historythisweek at history.com, or you can leave us a voicemail, 212-351-0410. Special thanks today to our guests, Tom Crouch, author of Lighter Than Air, An Illustrated History of Balloons and Airships, and Mi Young Kim, author of The Imagined Empire, Balloon Enlightenments in Revolutionary Europe. This episode was produced by Julia Press. History This Week is also produced by Julie Magruder, Ben Dickstein, and me, Sally Helm. Our editor and sound designer is Brian Flood. Our researcher is Emma Fredericks. Our executive producers are McKamey Lynn, Jesse Katz, and Ted Butler. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next week. 
I would know. I've been restoring this car for years, and today I'm giving it to my granddaughter. It's her 16th birthday and two years since my cancer diagnosis. Hold you finished it? Happy birthday, boo-boo. You keep making plans. Visit OhioHealth.com slash keep making plans to learn more.